Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for March 25th, 2020. So I am endeavoring to bring you all the most interesting, informative coronavirus quarantine content possible. Uh, I know we took a little break there, not because of anything bad. I wasn't under quarantine. I was actually moving into a new house, which is uh, hopefully going to be the last one that I have to move into for a very long time. Uh, and getting everything set up and you know, kind of getting an office space put together. And uh, that's all done now. So uh, I'm ready to record, ready to get back into the regular swing of things. Uh, hopefully this will all work out uh, well for everybody. Uh, I guess I'll know when I turn this off and listen to it if it's actually working. Um, but, uh, you know, everything is uh, is okay here. I hope you're all doing okay. I hope uh, none of you or any of your family members or friends have contracted the coronavirus. If you have, uh, obviously, my best wishes to you or to them for a, a full and complete recovery. Uh, I am hoping that you're all practicing safe distancing and all the things we're being uh, advised to do to try to contain this outbreak. Uh, in the meantime, uh, this is kind of a pandemic proof operation here since I'm uh, stuck in an office anyway at my house. Uh, so we're going to keep going. Uh, and today I'm going to be joined by John Pfeffer, who is the Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. John's going to talk to us. He's written a couple of pieces recently about the coronavirus and the pandemic. Uh, and you know, generally, somebody who, who thinks a lot about the, the kind of deeper issues behind uh, the things that are happening in the world. So I, was, I definitely wanted to have him on to, to discuss some of the nuances or the details of uh, what we're experiencing right now. Uh, we're going to talk about where things stand, uh, even though I know domestic politics aren't really our thing here i will probably ask him to comment on the new bailout slash stimulus package that the senate apparently just agreed to uh, he's written a piece uh, where he kind of went around the world and looked at the different responses uh, to the pandemic in different countries i'll ask him to comment sort of on on that and what ha what's happened since this was a piece he read, wrote last week and i'll link to this stuff in the in the show description uh, um you know just ask him to comment on who he sees you know what kind countries are, are doing well responding to the coronavirus, what countries are struggling, you know, what's what's sort of the worst case scenarios, the places that really, uh, you know, still haven't gotten the full brunt of the pandemic that uh, should be cause for alarm if and when they do. Uh, so we'll talk about a lot of these issues, and then I'm going to ask him kind of what he thinks might emerge on the other side of this, depending on how long it goes and how devastating it is. Uh, again, I hope you're all doing well. I uh, hope you're practicing safe distancing. I hope that you're not going to be forced to go back to work prematurely by our president uh, and by uh, our corporate masters. Uh, if if that happens, please stay safe. Stay safe in general, basically. Uh, but especially if you're you're in the unenviable position of uh, of having to go back to work in a situation where I think we all can agree it's not safe and uh, people should not be uh, obliged to do that if they can uh, if they can avoid it. So uh, and if you're if you're in one of those businesses or industries that's kind of stayed open uh, has been deemed essential. Uh, 
um, you know, also doubly, you know, if you're working at a grocery store or deliveries or any of that kind of stuff, uh, please, please stay safe. Uh, you have all of our thanks and, and best wishes. Uh, so with that all said, uh, I'm trying out some new software to record Skype calls. So hopefully this is either going to be much better, much improved listening experience for you guys, or it's going to be a complete disaster. And basically I won't know until we're done, but either way, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get John on the line and we'll get started with the interview. All right, I'm being joined by John Pfeffer. Uh, John is the Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the, at the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, he's written two pieces uh, recently about the coronavirus and the pandemic. Uh, one uh, called, Will the Coronavirus Kill Globalization? Which we'll get to uh, in a few minutes, in a little while here. Uh, and another called, What the Coronavirus Says About Us. Uh, and I kind of want to start there uh john and and first of all i guess i should say thank you for being on the show and i hope you're doing well under these trying times thank you thank you for having me on the show and and it's it's a pleasure to talk to anybody these days (laughs) (laughs) as we we, you know communicate across bunkers yes i can only imagine and it's uh i should uh i should let everybody know this is the second time we're recording this because my microphone uh quit on me the first time uh but it's uh yeah it's uh, not only are we quarantined today but the weather in in this part of the world is not good so it's not even really desirable to go outside and take a walk uh, um so john I, I as i said you've written these two pieces uh i'm gonna link to both of them in the show description uh, what I wanted to start with was uh, what the coronavirus says about us, and specifically, uh, the Senate just agreed to a new bailout package or stimulus package. Uh, it's like $1.8 trillion on its face, although there's a trigger for a much larger corporate bailout fund at the Fed. Um, and, and there's sort of a, a much smaller pool of money that's been dedicated to like hospitals and to individuals who are finding themselves struggling and out of work, uh, or, you know, struggling to make ends meet during the, this, uh, period of economic uncertainty. I wanted to ask first, you know, have you had a chance to digest anything about the, the bailout package and what does it say to you? Uh, about us, about our priorities uh, as a as a country and as a government. Well, I mean, certainly it reflects the priorities of this administration, um, and to a certain extent, the, the ruling party, the Republican Party. Um, the Democrats, of course, tried to smuggle in some language uh, that would be, say, more green uh, or more sustainable. Uh, with some money going to, say, clean energy, uh, with some uh, provisos for the bailout of the airline industry to ensure that it reduces its carbon footprint. There were also some efforts to ensure that the money wouldn't just go into CEO uh, executive uh, compensation packages. And and unfortunately, it doesn't really... uh, doesn't really include much in the way of that language. Um, so unfortunately, uh, it, it is a bailout package that pretty much reflects the status quo prior to the coronavirus outbreak. 
Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm afraid it it's, doesn't go anywhere toward the kind of transformation that we as a society here in this country need uh, to address not just kind of pandemics, this one and any future ones, but other global threats, uh, whether it's climate change or economic inequality, doesn't reflect the kind of necessity to really shift our budget priorities. I could go on, but that's, that's pretty much the, <laughs> that's, that's the, the state of that. Uh, so the piece you wrote, What the Coronavirus Says About Us, you looked at the response uh, to the, the pandemic in several countries, in China, in South Korea, in Italy, uh, and in the United States, and uh, you know, kind of compared how uh, they've been, how it was handled. Uh, and I should say, I mean, you wrote this piece a week ago, so uh, you know, there's been obviously some developments uh, in those places and elsewhere since then. Uh, but I wonder if you could sort of take us through uh, what struck you as you were looking at the uh, the different ways that these countries, all of which are sort of the most uh, other than Iran, I guess, the kind of the hardest hit countries uh, at one time or another by the coronavirus. What struck you as you were sort of looking at the ways uh, the governments in these countries responded to, to what was happening? Well, the first thing that struck me was that the responses were very different. And now that might seem pretty obvious, you know, when you when you think about it, countries are different, they're going to respond differently. But it actually wasn't supposed to be that way. Uh, after the SARS epidemic, the WHO came together and, you know, came up with new guidelines about how countries should respond uh, in tandem to a pandemic of this nature. And, you know, the one of the reasons why SARS was um, not the kind of pandemic we're seeing right now, why it was contained, was that there was an incredible international cooperation um, that was able to trace uh, the, the people who were infected. Uh, there was cooperation among med medical authorities. There was cooperation in the scientific community in identifying this, this uh, disease and how to respond to it. Uh, and so, you know, the, the WHO wanted to build on that and come up with best practices. And, and it wasn't as if there was uh, a lack of unanimity uh, coming out of this. And 198 countries basically uh, agreed. They said, yeah, this, this is good, these new regulations. And then next, you know, major pandemic comes around, the coronavirus, and it all goes out the window. And, and basically we revert to kind of our, our own national uh, responses. And, and I shouldn't say just national. I mean, because you know, they reflect the kind of political moment that every country happens to be in. Um, so, for instance, uh, let's take China. China um, responded initially, uh, as many have pointed out, in, in a kind of characteristically paranoid way. Um, uh, when doctors first identified at the end of December this novel coronavirus emerging in Wuhan, uh, the Chinese government basically cracked down on, on the doctors, tried to suppress uh, information about this new disease, all because they figured this was, you know, destabilizing, that this was, you know, spreading uh, misinformation. Um, in other words, uh, the Chinese government basically treated this new outbreak as if it were a kind of 
outbreak of political dissidents. Um, it responded in much the same way uh, that it has in the course of uh, the last 70 years or so to, uh, to any kind of what it perceives as potential challenge to the authority of, of the central centralized power of the Communist Party. Um, once it realized, of course, that this was true, that this was a real disease, that it had to be dealt with, it shifted into a very different mode, but also very characteristic of, uh, well, the Chinese political system. Uh, once it understood that this was not just a couple of people, i.e. isolated dissidents making noise about something, but that this was a kind of, uh, shall we say, a collective challenge to uh, Chinese society, it cracked down. It cracked down in a, in a systemic way by effectively closing down the, the city of Wuhan and Hubei province more generally. Um, and it did so with all of the tools um, and methods that are available to a centralized, powerful government that doesn't have to worry about, um, well, rule of law for the most part. Um, and, it, uh, and that has been effective. Uh, there, there's no question that the Chinese methods uh, were effective in containing the virus. Uh, you just look at the numbers, um, they have, you know, they went up rather quickly to around 80,000 infections and, and have not gone that much further than that in the last several weeks. Um, right. And I think today they just, uh, you know, lifted travel restrictions on Hubei province, which was the uh, epicenter of the outbreak. Wuhan, the city of Wuhan, which is sort of the epicenter of the epicenter, uh, still has some restrictions, but they're only going to be in place for a couple more weeks. So it's really remarkable, I think, to to look at that and see, uh, you know, you can say they've really hit a milestone there, I think. Absolutely. And then at the moment, what they're most worried about is uh, infection coming in from outside, from all the other places that have been subsequently infected um, after the outbreak in China. Um, and so you do see kind of a, a small uptick in the number of cases, but again, they, they, it's generally under control. Now, there have been side effects to that. Um, you know, the Human Rights Watch did a very good report on, you know, the, the folks who have died as a result of this crackdown, not because of the virus, but because their caregivers um, could not reach them because uh, there were no ex exemptions, basically, for, for them. Um, or people who couldn't get uh, needed medical attention for other problems. So there, there definitely were, um, were the kinds of uh, collateral damage, if you will, that perhaps would not have been um, found acceptable in a democratic society, but which the Chinese government was, was willing to, to endure. So that, that's China. That's, that's an example of, of you know, a successful uh, attempt to contain the virus. If you look at South Korea, which is perhaps uh, the next country in line to, to suffer a major outbreak, um, they also have successfully more or less contained it and at a lower level, but with different tactics. And those tactics have relied on uh, the greater technological sophistication. And I don't mean that South Korea is more technologically advanced than China. Is it, is it that the advanced technology is more widespread in the country. China remains a divided country in terms of uh, economic inequality, in terms of the, the kind of penetration of technology. 
uh, in the cities versus the countryside. South Korea the, is much more widespread, the kind of technological advances, so that, uh, for instance, uh, the testing kits were up and running, uh, being produced by South Korean companies uh, well in advance of, of uh, the epidemic really taking hold in the country, which meant that South Korea could test much more uh, wide, you know, could engage in far more widespread testing, but uh, even more importantly, could trace uh, the epidemic as it uh, as it circulated around the country and really engage in pinpoint quarantines rather than shutting down the whole country, uh, as other countries have done, namely Italy and India now, and to a certain extent, the United States, although that's uneven. South Korea was able to really contain the clusters of infection as opposed to trying to simply shut down the society. And it does, and it did so through, again, technology, uh, through uh, phone apps, for instance, that could trace uh, or de determine whether people were um, obeying quarantine, that could uh, trace people's uh, act, uh, mobility through society and ensure that anybody else who might be infected by them uh, would be notified and also quarantined if necessary. So that, too, is, has proven a, a very effective um, strategy. And, and to a certain extent, you, you find that uh, a similar process has been uh, engaged in, in Germany. Um, Germany now has, again, a, a much larger number of uh, infections, but if you look at the mortality rate, it's extraordinarily low. And I think that they attribute it to, to a similar kind of process of, of, uh, of contact tracing. So that, that's on the, on the positive side of things, if you will, um, China and South Korea. Um, the other two countries that I talk about are Italy and the United States. Italy, um, I guess there would be uh, a couple of, of reasons perhaps why it, the, the outbreak in Italy is, has proven so dramatic in its impact. First of all, it's, it's focused in uh, particular regions. So it's, uh, it, it has overwhelmed the hospital system in Northern Italy where uh, the population is quite elderly. And the Italian population in general is quite el elderly. I mean, if you look at average age of countries in the world, the oldest country um, on average is Japan, and second is Italy. And of course, this was a surprise to me. I always knew about Japan, but I, I was surprised to find that, that Italy had such a, a high average age. I, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of figured that Western countries would be clustered high on the list, but I didn't realize Italy was in particular so so elderly. That that was an interesting thing to find out. Yeah, I guess there there are two uh, two major reasons. One, of course, it, it has a very low birth rate, and now that is shared by many countries around the world. But um, but I think that hit Italy earlier than other European countries. And the second is. Um, uh, they didn't have the kind of influx of immigrants uh, that you would find in, for instance, France, which really brought down the, the age of, of the population or uh, in certain Scandinavian countries. Um, and one can attribute that perhaps to the um, animus towards immigrants that has uh, gained political currency in Italy over the last 
couple decades, unfortunately. Um, as well as, and I guess a third factor would be the, the lack of jobs for young people in Italy and the the uh, outmigration of, of young Italians to other parts of Europe, which was of course made possible by the rules of the European Union, um, which left behind uh, the older folks for the most part, especially in kind of rural areas. So, uh, so the fact that Italy has a has a much older population meant that it would have a much higher mortality. And if we're looking at mortality rates, you know, the, the mortality rates for the coronavirus, it's hard to be precise about this for a couple of reasons. One, because we don't know really how many people have been infected. If, if we had universal testing, we'd have much better numbers. Um, and there are a lot of people who are asymptomatic who are probably spreading the disease uh, unbeknownst to them. It makes knowing how many cases there are in any country as well as globally extremely difficult. But, uh, and of course, if you don't know the general, the overall numbers, you can't come up with a, a really um, precise mortality rate. But given that those asterisks, uh, we can say that the mortality rate somewhere between one and 4% on average uh, compared to um, say, uh, Ebola, which is around 50%, uh, and uh, your general bad flu, which is around 0.1%. But within that range of 1% to 4%, you have outliers, and Italy would be an outlier at almost 10% mortality rate, which is kind of astonishing, all the way down to like 0.2% for Germany, um, which is kind of equally astonishing, given especially how close Germany and Italy are to uh, geographically speaking, and the fact that the virus uh, initially spread to Italy from China, there were two uh, tourists, but uh, as far as scientists can figure out, um, the, the, more, the more widespread infections of northern Italy originally came from Germany. But once it was in Italy, then uh, two factors, I think, really um, made the, the virus particularly virulent in Italy. One is the, the kind of focus on China as the vector of, uh, of infection, which really, I think, blindsided the country in terms of, of uh, when the infection emerged in Northern Italy. They were looking for kind of connections to Chinese tourists or Chinese business. And so the initial um, patient zero, perhaps patient one and two, uh, they they were missed. Uh, they were not. Uh, they, in the case of patient one, um, it wasn't patient zero because we don't really know who patient zero was. But patient one, this fellow, went to the hospital, was turned back. Uh, they didn't know what it was. They didn't think it was coronavirus. He wasn't Chinese. He didn't have connections to China, and he ended up probably infecting an enormous number of people um, and setting off a chain reaction. The second uh, for Italy uh, problem was um, the, uh, one could call it the Italian propensity to not follow orders. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and that's something that's kind of often celebrated in Italian culture, the uh, kind of a, a trickster um, uh, mentality. Uh, but in this case, it proved to be um, very uh, negative for uh and under the current conditions, because as soon as Italy tried to uh, lock down, for instance, the northern part of the country and prevent people from spreading the disease throughout the country, 
uh, instead of, you know, saying, okay, well, we'll shelter in place. We'll go inside. We'll, you know, we'll do what we can to, you know, to contain this virus. Uh, people flooded, you know, train stations and they, they got in their cars and they started <laughs> traveling all around the country, you know, which was really not the, the best kind of response. Uh, and that pushed uh, the Italian government to, you know, really uh, impose the lockdown throughout the country rather than just in, in the northern part. Um, the, the economic challenges within Italy probably also contributed as well in the sense that uh, even though the Italian healthcare system and certainly the health insurance system is pretty good, especially by U.S. standards, um, it had declined over the last few years as a result of austerity economic policies. Um, and uh, so that all of those kind of contributed to, to what we would call a perfect storm um, in, in Italy. Uh, and they, they still have not yet been able to contain the virus in Italy, though it, it seems possibly, and this is just my own uh, kind of my own personal um, uh, conclusion from uh, watching the, the numbers on the Johns Hopkins site, it looks like it possibly is slowing down. Not the more, not the death rate, which is, has increased, but the actual infection rate. But again, that's difficult to tell. So those are the first three countries. Uh, do you want to ask any questions before we move on to the United States? Um, well, I, I, yes. I mean, I was I was going to talk after, but we could we could interject here because I, I do, uh, you know, moving in a little more in the direction of your other piece about you know what what effect this is going to have on uh, globalization. Uh, you know, you've written about the European Union and you know the rise of kind of nationalism and euro skepticism in the eu member states um it, it strikes me that the fact that we're talking about uh you know the death rate the mortality rate in germany is very low and uh, the mortality rate in italy is very high and here's the number of infections in france and here's the number of infections in you know spain uh and we're not really talking about a europe-wide response uh it reflects a, a failure of the eu to operate as it should operate i wonder if you have some thoughts about that and whether uh you know this is the kind of thing that could uh, discredit the project in a sense long term yeah absolutely i mean it's a crisis like this of course it reveals kind of how skin deep european integration is um i mean you have you know everything points to kind of a thick european integration i mean all the institutions the european parliament the regulations everything that you know the euro skeptics in in britain pointed to as reasons for brexit you know they measure our cucumbers you know they 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 make it impossible for us to to sell our cheese you know unless it it meets very precise regulations so on the basis of that, you would think, well, this is this project is is extremely durable, you know, um, and yet a crisis like this comes along and it reveals that despite all of these institutional connections, despite the regulatory framework, European integration, uh, it, it has not penetrated the cultural slash political slash social um, milieu 
of each of these countries, no matter how well integrated they might be economically. So to give you an example, there is the Schengen area. And the Schengen area is like uh, 20 odd countries within the, the European Union, plus a couple outside the European Union, that have abolished um, their, uh, their internal borders and, and kind of their internal visa regulations. And uh, this was something that began in uh, kind of a, in a formalized sense in the 90s, although the actual agreement date, dates back to the 80s. But it, it starts formally in the 90s, 96, uh, gathers steam, brings more and more countries in. And, uh, and Euroskeptics, Marine Le Pen in France, for instance, um, were always kind of railing against Schengen. They're always saying, you know, this is this is a terrible, terrible idea, because once you kind of eliminate these internal barriers, these internal borders, uh, countries lose their sovereign control over their borders. Um, you have uh, terrorists running around from one country to the other and you can't you can't control them. You have immigrants going from one country to the other and you can't control them. And for the most part, those those uh, complaints were on the margins. It seemed as if Schengen was a reality and even, you know, the far right would have to get used to it. And then as soon as this coronavirus hits, uh, countries begin reimposing uh, their own borders. And, and this, they actually violate the terms of their Schengen area agreements, because as part of the agreement, they're actually supposed to provide notification, there's supposed to be some discussion, no discussion, no notification, and the borders just go up, you know? And it, it was such a problem that ultimately last week, uh, the European Union said, okay, you know, we're, we're actually going to suspend Schengen for uh, something like uh, 30 days. Uh, they'll probably extend it beyond that. but. Um, but that's an example of uh, something that, you know, the Euroskeptics have been complaining about, namely borders, uh, for, for decades and were unsuccessful. And then within a matter of weeks, uh, this thing basically disappears. Now, granted, it's temporary. And if all goes well and coronavirus is, is contained, then one could imagine that there, uh, the Schengen area will be reestablished. That's within Europe. Now, the question of borders between Europe and other countries, well, obviously that's another issue that um, is, uh, has been a kind of a bugbear for the far right in Europe, has been their kind of major political um, uh, platform for, for the last decade. Uh, and there too, they see um, you know, much of their platform being adopted by, uh, by countries as they close borders to prevent uh, infections from coming uh, from the outside. Um, so, you know, the, the whole kind of sovereignist, this is what the, the far right calls itself these days, not so much Eurosceptic, but sovereignist. This sovereignist movement within Europe uh, was gaining steam even before the, uh, the coronavirus hit, and you know, last year in the European Parliament elections, the sovereignist uh, bloc um, basically doubled its its share of the European Parliament. Um, it was gaining steam before the pandemic hit, but the pandemic provides uh, provides an opportunity, not necessarily for the far right parties to kind of win votes. It provides them with an opportunity to uh, inject their ideas into the mainstream, 
to give them mainstream credibility. And I think ultimately that erodes and will erode um, European Union solidarity. Uh, it's still up in the air, I think, kind of how the European Union will come out of all of this. Um, obviously, economically, it will be hit just as hard as, as pretty much every other part of the world, and that will be a challenge. And it will be hit hard differentially. In other words, Italy is going to be you know, a, a basket case economically coming out of this in a way that Germany won't be. Um, so it'll reproduce kind of the, the same problems of the, the euro crisis that hit Europe, Europe earlier with the Mediterranean countries going into debt. Greece and so forth, and the northern countries being furious at having to bail them out, uh, it will come back uh, in, a, in a new form, in a kind of coronavirus form, and the northern countries will be less, uh, will have less uh, economic capacity to to help out uh, the, the the harder hit parts of the continent. So. The fractures in Europe, I think, will only grow, unfortunately, as a, as a function of this, this outbreak. So let's talk briefly. I mean, we've already talked about the, the bailout package, so we've covered this to some extent. But, but take us through the, the, fourth, the fourth country that you looked at, which was the United States, and what st- stood out to you in the, the way that the Trump administration very, very competently <laughs> responded to the pandemic. Right. Well, so I, in the article, I talk about the way American exceptionalism um, is reflected in the administration's response, but not just the administration. I, mean, I shouldn't put it entirely on, on Trump um, or his cronies. But in any case, the, the five stages, more or less, of American exceptionalism. The first was, of course, that it's not going to happen here. Um, and that's always, you know, the, the first <laughs> response by Americans <laughs> that we are exceptions um, as by virtue of our geography, by virtue of God, <laughs> by virtue of whatever. Um, and uh, whatever happens to the rest of the world, like, you know, wide scale disrupt destruction during World War Two, it's just not going to happen to us. Uh, so that was the first stage. And of course, when it did break out. Um, our second stage was, uh, well, it, uh, it'll happen here, but it's just uh, the fault of foreigners, you know. So it's, you know, the Chinese tourists or a couple of people who contracted the virus in China, entirely containable because, you know, this thing is, is, is foreign and, and well, we're American. So it's, it's not going to have that kind of effect on us. Um, the, the third stage was that, okay, um, it's going to happen here, but it's not going to happen uh, as uh, as virulently as it's happening in other countries because for a variety of reasons. There was an article in the Washington Post by Henry Olson, an op-ed writer, and he's like, well, we drive a lot here and there's a lot of space between, you know, uh, between houses and uh and we don't kiss each other on the cheek like they do in other countries. I mean, just kind of ridiculous reasons why, you know, uh, it's not going to affect America the same way it affects other countries. The fourth stage of, of American exceptionalism was, okay, okay, it is going to happen here, um, but uh, but we don't really have to respond to it in a um, in a coordinated federal um, 
way. You know, the, one of the strengths of America is our, our states, our con- effectively confederal structure in which uh, states have a tremendous amount of authority over um, what happens within the boundaries of the states. And the federal government doesn't have to kind of step in and coordinate any kind of response. Um, and, you know, we, we quickly found that that was, uh, <laughs> that was not going to be an effective response because, of course, many of the governors of the hardest hit states were, were looking for federal guidance, not only guidance, of course, but federal resources. Uh, they were looking for testing kits. They were looking for ventilators. They were looking for basic hospital equipment uh, that they hoped that the federal government uh, would be able to provide. I mean, th- that's basic stuff. I mean, they weren't asking for a kind of Chinese federal response in which the American government shuts everything down, closes down rail lines and, and airlines. And they were simply looking for a kind of basic uh, federal response. And they didn't get it. In fact, Donald Trump, when asked about ventilators by uh, the governors, basically said, go and get them yourselves, um, which is a remarkable response from, from the executive. <laughs> you know, that it's almost as if he was asked by another country, you know, not by, right, by people right, within right. America, <laughs> go get it yourself, which was kind of uh, really uh, uh, an exemplar of not just American exceptionalism, but, um, but American individualism, you know, this kind of bootstrap approach to dealing with this, this problem. So that was the fourth stage, which of course we're, we're in right now. Uh, as we uh, move into the fifth stage, and the fifth stage is simply, uh-oh, as we, we realize uh, that, in fact, all previous four stages of American exceptionalism were wrong, and we are not an exception. Um, and in fact, as the number of cases grow and the mortality uh, figures rise, we uh, are outpacing other countries rather um, quickly and with no end in sight. And in fact, uh, the same kind of uh, overwhelming of the hospital system uh, that Italy experienced is now happening today in New York City um, and with the prospect that this will uh, happen in other hot spots, particularly if, uh, again, reflecting his, ex- his American exceptionalism, the president says, well, we'll have everything up and running by Easter, um, reflecting no uh, understanding of how the outbreak has progressed in other countries, although perhaps thinking that America can contain the virus like China and South Korea, but without any of the methods that China or South Korea actually deployed. So as, as you look around now and, and, you know, it's been, uh, as I said, you, you know, you wrote that piece, last week and and there've obviously been a lot of developments around the world related to the pandemic uh as you sort of watch this all unfold uh i wonder what are the places that you look at uh apart aside from the four countries that you looked at for that piece uh what are the places you look at and think this could really be bad uh, if it hits here and i'm thinking about you know countries that are uh, you know, war zones, talk about, you know, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, places like that, countries that are being crippled by 
international or in some cases just U.S. sanctions like Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, uh, places that, like Gaza, you know, that has been, you know, eroded over a decade plus of, of uh, Israeli blockade. Uh, and then other places that maybe aren't so much, you know, kind of under outside pressure, but are seem like they could be uh, very dangerous grounds for uh, for the virus to spread. And, you know, people have warned about uh, about it catching on in, in South Asia. People have warned about it catching on in Southeast Asia. Uh, there have been pieces warning about, you know, what happens if this thing starts to get into uh, refugee camps like, uh, you know, in Bangladesh or in, you know, in Greece or, uh, you know, there are displaced populations all over uh, sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, even in northern, in North Africa. Um, you know, as you're sort of looking around at, at the spread of this thing, has anything kind of really caught your um, you know, kind of caught in your throat and as a place that uh, you would be very worried about? Well, I, I think you really covered uh, all of the, the really vulnerable places, and certainly Gaza, certainly um, refugee camps, um, certainly areas that experience drought because, of course, water is, is key to um, washing our hands and ensuring that, that a uh, pandemic doesn't spread. Places that have uh, very, very weak medical systems um, in place. Uh, all of that is, is you know, uh, of terrible concern. I mean, you know, one of the ironies, as I'm writing a different article about kind of the, the connections between pandemics and, and the global economy, one of the ironies uh, in the last month or so has been um, there have been a number of uh, press releases from the WHO about their victory over Ebola um, in Congo. And the last case was uh, February 22nd or so. Um, uh, and the last person left the hospital in, in early March. So just as, you know, the coronavirus is starting to spread all over the world, we have this success story, which ordinarily probably would have made it in the headlines, but which is completely ignored because, you know, is paying attention to it. Um, but it's not just a success story. The WHO is actually, as part of those press releases, saying, you know, we, we've managed to, to contain this outbreak, the, the latest one, but uh, all the money has dried up. There's no more money left for, for Ebola containment, and there are still uh, great potential for um for uh, the disease to reemerge as it has every so often in, in Africa. Um, so if you can imagine the combination of, uh, of pandemics, uh, not just coronavirus, but the reemergence of, um, of Ebola in parts of Africa, obviously we saw uh, the explosion of cholera in Yemen uh, during the civil war. So this combination of, of diseases would be of course devastating. Um, in another article, it actually it just came out uh, as we were talking here in this interview um, this week uh, that I wrote on kind of the political um, ramifications of the coronavirus. One of the things I, I worry about in this particular article is, um, and this is this is not uh, a question of the vulnerability from a epidemiological point of view, a medical point of view 
healthcare point of view. It's it's a vulnerability from a political point of view, where um, illiberal leaders are using the coronavirus as an excuse to accumulate more power. And we've seen that in two particularly salient examples, uh, recently Hungary and Israel. In Hungary, Viktor Orban, the prime minister, has put before parliament a, a bill that would basically um, allow his government to arrest anybody that disagrees with it under the, um, the rationale that, that uh, they are spreading dangerous uh, information, much as we saw initially with the, the Chinese response in uh, Wuhan. Uh, parliament this week uh, said no, but that, that's just the first cut. Uh, the expectation is that next week it'll go back before Parliament and Orban's party, Fidesz, has a majority there and will probably push it through. In Israel, uh, Netanyahu uh, basically closed down the, the judicial system, um, again, using coronavirus as a, as a pretext. And uh, that was very convenient since he was supposed to go on trial on corruption charges. And uh, and, uh, on top of that, pushed through a a kind of new measure for surveillance uh, that would allow the Israeli security service to to basically track anybody it wants. Um, And at the same time, the, the, uh, uh, the speaker of the Knesset just today uh, stepped down um, and closed the Knesset. Now, <laughs> he did that uh, because, um, it, well, there was a, a court decision, a Supreme Court decision that, that said he would have to step down, but he would have to step down and actually have a vote for his successor. He decided to step down and close the Knesset instead. The Speaker of the Knesset, of course, is in the Likud, uh, Netanyahu's party. And uh, it was a brilliant measure to avoid the, the chief uh, opposition coalition or quasi-opposition coalition, blue and white, uh, from taking over the Knesset with a new speaker. Now, uh, again, you know, Israel might emerge from this with a coalition government and all will be well, quote unquote. But at least for this week, it looks very, very bad for Israeli democracy. So that's just two examples. But um, clearly, we're going to see whether it's Trump here in the United States or Putin in Russia or Duterte in the Philippines, um, the the introduction of emergency so-called powers uh, for the leader to take extraordinary measures um, to buttress their own power. Thinking about what is you know what the the pandemic is is likely to to do or what effect it's likely to have politically, and you you know obviously. Uh, just written a piece about it. We'll, I'll link to that one in the show description also. Uh, um, but you, you know, you already wrote a couple of weeks ago a piece about the, um, you know, comparing this to the Spanish flu and what the Spanish flu in 1918 did to, you know, sort of that phase of globalization prior to, you know, or sort of right after World War One, kind of prior to to the Depression and World War Two. Um, and, you know, just kind of thinking, I guess, about what's going to emerge, uh, at the end of this, I, I, it occurred to me yesterday as, as, 
Uh, we were suddenly, you know, abruptly kind of everybody, you know, Wall Street and the, 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 admin, the Trump administration, we all, Fox News, kind of the whole, the whole gang, uh, kind of abruptly pivoted from everybody needs to stay home, everybody needs to social distance, everybody needs to help contain the virus. We pivoted from that to we got to get everybody back to work or else the economy is going to suffer, uh, which seems incredibly premature and incredibly kind of short-sighted and, and, and just vile, really, in, in many ways. Um, do you have any optimism? And I don't want to frame this as, like, are we going to... Is this an opportunity that can be seized upon it that seems crass, but are we going to learn any lessons from this experience about the, the, the need for a global response to major issues like this that could be uh, played out in terms of climate change? Uh, I know the United Nations has sort of like rolled out one big ask a day, it seems like this week, you know, the, the, the Antonio Guterres, uh, you know, talked on Monday about a global ceasefire, and he talked on Tuesday about everybody lifting sanctions or at least easing them to help get through the crisis. And uh, I think today, you know, they talked about uh, the need to free prisoners so they're not kind of sitting in these potential uh, petri dish pr prisons waiting to get infected. Uh, it seems to me that. Uh, the UN would have better luck negotiating with the virus to stop infecting people uh, than it's going to have with these big asks. But do you have any optimism that there's going to something can come of this that we're going to actually learn a, a positive lesson, uh, you know, moving forward, or is it just going to retrench these sort of uh, reactionary forces that that uh, reject any of that kind of talk? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that last point, which I think is the critical one, because it goes to the, the heart of the question, which is a pronoun question. It's who is the we are we, which we are we talking about? Is it me and you? I think me and you, we figured out what the, the lessons are, you know. Um, I think there are plenty of scientists and, uh, and political uh, analysts and, and average people who have drawn absolutely the right lessons from this particular crisis. Whether those lessons translate into policy, well, that is, you know, a, a question of power, you know, and, um, and at the moment, I'm not particularly optimistic about uh, the translation of those lessons into, into actual policy. Um, you know, the the, the virus itself, a virus never, you know, leads to uh, the end of a particular civilization, as, as far as we can tell. I mean, it contributes to it. Uh, but as with, you know, uh, the, uh, a human organism, the virus uh, really um, attacks people most um, strenuously who have underlying conditions. And uh, viruses in the past have kind of dispatched empires that already uh, were uh, on their last legs, if you will. Um, viruses or uh, plagues certainly played an important role in weakening and eventually ending the Roman Empire. Um, as you said, the, the Spanish flu in 1918 didn't necessarily end any empires. World War I ended those empires. But it did contribute to um, kind of delivering a uh, coup de grace, if you will, uh, against 
economic globalization, which up until 1914 had been accelerating at a rather rapid pace and would not again recover to comparable levels if we're talking about, say, international trade as a percentage of GDP until the late 1960s, which is actually quite extraordinary. Um, so if, if we're looking forward, well, the coronavirus is going to hit hard um, economic systems, countries uh, that already are, have been weakened for other reasons. One could argue that the United States, for instance, its economic position in the world will be weak, will be um, severely compromised by the coronavirus because of underlying conditions, uh, not just the political decisions of Donald Trump, but you know the, the extraordinary amount of economic debt we'd already gone into before we started considering the, the current economic stimulus package. Um, the global economy um, and the economic globalization project as a whole already um, had experienced a kind of what, what economists call a, a slobalization. In other words, over the last 10 years, a, a slowing down of economic globalization. If you're looking at figures like foreign direct investment or, again, trade as a percentage of GDP, not dramatic, not a dramatic drop, but a kind of erosion, if you will, of economic globalization. On top of that, if you consider the environmental critiques of, uh, of economic globalization and the um, tremendous contribution that international trade and production and manufacturing has made to um, carbon emissions and the increase of the likelihood of, of climate disaster. And then... A third factor being, of course, uh, already technological transformations that are at work um, that militate against economic globalization, such as automation. I mean, there's no point, for instance, in situating your factory overseas to take advantage of cheaper labor if the cheapest labor is, in fact, robots in the next room. So automation was already kind of eating away at um, the potential profit margins of um, of outsourcing. So all of those kind of uh, had weakened economic globalization, if you will. Those are the kind of underlying um, conditions. And then the coronavirus comes along and, uh, and it kind of, again, delivers the final blow. Um, but that doesn't mean that we will kind of, coming out of this virus, become like the Middle Ages. I mean, it, it's not like suddenly we'll, we'll be stuck in monasteries trying to preserve the knowledge of the 20th and 21st century to pass on to later generations. Um, I don't see it quite in those apocalyptic terms. That, that might not be a big project, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do see um, a, a different kind of uh, global economy coming out of this. Um, that for it to survive, for, for countries to, um, to participate in a global economy in any meaningful way, it has to be established on different terms. Um, and those terms will have to be sustainable. They will have to permit the kinds of um, sovereign decisions by countries to, uh, to move their their resources in the direction of strengthening labor, environmental, and in, the, and in this case, health care um, capabilities. Uh, without that, I'm afraid a global economy simply, uh, the, the one we 
enjoyed or not enjoyed over the last 30 to 40 years will simply not be possible. On that note, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, John Pfeffer, um, why don't you, you know, tell people a little bit about foreign policy and focus and uh, why they should be reading you guys on a regular basis, which I highly recommend and I do it, but, uh, you know, uh, other people should be doing it too. Make the pitch. <laughs> so, so yeah foreign policy and focus uh is a, a website fpif.org where we produce um analysis of uh, foreign policy the u.s foreign policy global policy and provide kind of um alternative um visions of, of what those policies could be much along the lines of what I was saying in terms of uh, restructuring the global economy. We have a great uh, group of people that um, contribute from around the world. Uh, Con Hallinan has a piece on in, on Italy. Uh, Walden Bello from the Philippines has a piece on globalization. Um, I have a, a piece from South Korea on coronavirus and media, a piece from the Netherlands on, on its response to uh the coronavirus. Um, so really some, some fabulous contributors. Uh, we always have between three and six new pieces every week. And I do a, a weekly column and I highly recommend that people check it out. I do too. You have my, uh, uh un, uh, I, well, I'm blanking now, but my complete endorsement of foreign policy and focus, fpif.org. You guys definitely need to check it out. Uh, John, again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, stay safe, and uh, hope we can talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for thanks again for having me on the show. Once again, I want to thank John Pfeffer for coming on the show and talking to us about the pandemic, about COVID nineteen. Uh, in this very troubling time in which we find ourselves living. Uh, that f website, again, is Foreign Policy and Focus, fpif.org. You should definitely check that out. Uh, before we go, and I'm going to forego the, the outro music today, um, and I know I briefly mentioned this at the top of the show, but I want to say it again. Uh, uh, please, 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 uh, to the extent that you're able, please abide by uh, the social distancing and other, uh, you know, recommendations that are being offered by health professionals uh, as ways to try and contain this virus. And uh, I know it's too late to talk about minimizing its impact, but to the extent, you know, to whatever extent we can keep this from getting much, much worse, please take those steps uh, that are being recommended if you're able. Uh, for those of you, uh, again, who are out there uh, because we need you to be out there uh, or because you can't afford not to be out there, and there's a whole bunch of people, and I'm gonna not going to cover all of them, but... Uh, you know, I'm talking about people in the medical profession, doctors and nurses and uh, physicians assistants and uh, paramedics and, you know, everybody, pharmacists, everybody working in the medical profession who we really can't do without at a time like this. Uh, and people who are working in grocery stores or delivering things to people who need it, uh, people who are, are, you know, staffing, uh, working in restaurants and, and you know, all the, the kind 
kind of things that we take for granted under normal times that are, are really literally you know keeping people alive right now and keeping people you know in in uh you know in some shape to continue on um uh, you know all of you folks and i, I again i know i've missed so many of you and, and so many people who are uh in categories that that uh, haven't been mentioned but you know all of you are out there uh doing the things that that the rest of us need at a time like this thank you so much for what you're doing and please 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 uh stay safe uh we're all uh you know so very dependent on you right now uh and and you know we we appreciate uh, you know everybody here at uh the <laughs> foreign exchanges family uh and everybody else out there really we appreciate what you're doing so much uh, and we want you to stay as safe as possible uh, while you're doing it. Uh, if you're out there because you just can't afford not to be, uh, again, please, please stay safe. And I, I know how that can be. Uh, and I, I, I want you all to, uh, to come out of this on the other side. I really mean that. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a scary time, I know. Uh, it's it's a very uncertain time and, and we live in a society that isn't very forgiving in situations like this it's not uh built to to uh, take care of the people who are in the most precarious circumstances uh at a time like this it's not built to help people who are homeless or even just you know sort of struggling to make a rent payment or struggling to uh to put food on the table at a time like this we don't live in uh, the kind of society where people take care of each other we live in a society where we're it's drilled into us over and over again uh you know it's every man for himself and i got mine screw you i'm gonna i'm gonna take care of myself and and the rest of you can can get bent uh and that's not the appropriate way for a society to be in in my opinion and it's certainly not uh, the kind of society that that can easily survive and easily manage a a, 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 a catastrophical kind of international global emergency like this, uh, but hopefully we will come out of it, and hopefully maybe at some margin uh, we will learn something and take something from this that can be applied the next time something like this happens, whether it's another pandemic or uh, some other kind of catastrophe or just climate change, uh, whatever it is, uh, maybe, hopefully, something will come out of this that we can cling to uh, for the next time. But but right now, uh, you know, f f everybody out there, if you're listening, uh, you and your families and, and, and everybody really, uh, I just, I hope you all stay safe and I, I hope uh, uh, you stay well and, and you're not uh, you know, you're not feeling, uh, I know we're all feeling some amount of pressure, but, but that, uh, somehow you, you're able to, uh, to get your way, see your way through this. Um, until next time, uh, as always, thank you for listening and, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care really. Bye-bye.